0: Well, it is Tuesday of Passion Week in Mark's Gospel, and Jesus is continuing to face off against the Jewish authorities in the temple. And it is uh, these interactions that we've been studying that are going to uh, provoke and bring about his crucifixion just a few days later. Uh, Recall that Jesus has just cleansed the court of the Gentiles which was uh, to be a place of prayer for all nations. After that, he refuted their questioning of where his authority comes from. Does it come from heaven or does it come from man? And Jesus answered by standing in solidarity with John the Baptist. Where John's authority came from, so also came Christ's. And then last week, we saw that Jesus prophesied to them uh, via a parable their destruction. This is the the parable of the vineyard and these Jewish leaders are husbandmen or tenants that are working in God's vineyard. Now if you remember last uh, week, uh, what was the sin of these uh, husbandmen or tenants in the vineyard? Well, it was twofold. Uh, first, they were stealing God's stuff, not giving to God the tribute or fruit that he deserved. And then second, they were killing the prophets and messengers that God had sent to them. So they refused John the Baptist, and now they are refusing God himself in Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Malachi chapter 3 prophesies. It says in verses 1 to 3, the following, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. So that's John the Baptist, and then it goes on. And the Lord, whom ye seek, "...shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver." so that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So what is Jesus doing in these arguments with the Jews? Well, he's the Lord God, the messenger of the covenant, who's purifying the sons of Levi, the priests, the scribes, the elders. Jesus' presence, his coming, his cleansing of the temple is the refiner's fire, the beginnings of it. And he's doing this so that only the gold and the silver will remain. So the purpose of all this cleansing is, as Malachi 3 says, so that God's people may, quote, offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So we know Israel is God's vineyard. God still wants the fruit from that vineyard. He wants love. He wants good works. He wants justice from them. And God is going to get that fruit one way or another. So God He prunes us uh, to make us more fruitful. He purges us with fire to make us more glorious. He destroys the evil to make us more like him. Now, all of that is important context for understanding uh, the hypocrisy of the question that the Pharisees and the Herodians are going to pose for Jesus. This is one of those texts where like, even if you're not a Christian, everyone Kind of knows, render to Caesar, uh, you know, give to Caesar, give to God. Uh, that's just like an American. Americans kind of know that. Um, but this is actually a really challenging passage, and it, and uh, co- commentators. Uh, uh, the problem with reading scripture when you have lots of assumptions is that often your assumptions are wrong, and then you come out with wrong conclusions. So many wrong conclusions. Many. Uh, bad practical applications have arisen from this text. So we're going to actually need to uh, uh, do a little extra work this week to understand um, what is going on here. So the, the Pharisees and the Herodians are going to pose this question, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? And you need to think about everything that has happened just prior to this, especially that parable of the vineyard. Because then you start to understand the hypocrisy. Because here are the husbandmen in Jesus' parable who refuse to give God his tribute. They refuse to give God the fruit that he deserves. And yet here they are now pretending in front of Jesus to be really torn up on this question of whether it's lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not. Right? They're, they're fakes. They're pretending uh, that uh, this is a real question for them. So this is kind of like uh, the closest analogy would be kind of like someone who uh, refuses to pay their tithes to God, but then wants to uh, object to paying their income taxes on religious grounds, right? So, you know, when it comes uh, tax season, they say, no king but Christ, you know, God is my only authority, but then they don't actually even give God His uh, what belongs to him. So this is kind of a close analogy to what is going on with uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians. So this is the hypocrisy Jesus is going to expose. So uh, I want to consider this text at two levels. First, uh, we'll try to understand what Jesus is teaching and how it would uh, apply to them in the first century. And so there's going to be really a lot of history in this sermon, and this is going to set us up for next week where I'm going to, uh, I'll give a kind of state of the church 2024 sermon where we're going to apply some of these things in the 21st century, which is uh, a much more difficult task. So a lot of times people just jump to applying this to our day and and age and our circumstances, but uh, it's very easy to make mistakes if you don't first understand the original context. So we got to start there before we make uh, the jump to applying it to us. So that's that's what we're going to try to do. So uh, I expect you will have questions after this sermon, and you'll have to wait until next week when we try to handle those. All right, so let's begin our exposition, uh, starting in verse 13, and it says this. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of of the Herodians to catch him in his words. Uh, So who are the they that are sending these Pharisees and Herodians? Well, these are the same uh, chief priests, scribes, and elders uh, that he started talking to back in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. So these are the highest Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, and together uh, they composed the Sanhedrin, which is basically the Jewish uh, Supreme Court. They are also, as I said, uh, the husbandmen or the tenants uh, that Jesus just described in the parable of the vineyard. So the chief priests, scribes, elders, they send the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus. Uh, That's odd. Why send these two groups to Jesus to ask this specific question about paying tribute to Caesar? Well, we know they're trying to set a trap for Jesus, but what is the trap that they are trying to? Uh, to set. Why send the Pharisees and Herodians? Well, the reason is because uh, the Pharisees and Herodians were theological enemies on some issues, like who the Messiah was, but they were united in that Jesus was a threat to both of their power. So these are, um, you know, this is kind of like uh, the the liberal Methodists and the conservative Baptists getting together which, you know, otherwise they're always at odds with one another, and yet they're getting together to oppose this common enemy. That's kind of like what's going on here. So, uh, who were the Herodians? Well, the Herodians uh, likely believe that Herod, from which they get their name, the Herodians, uh, they believe that Herod and his sons were the rightful heirs of the Davidic monarchy. So, for them, The Herodian line was the coming of the Messiah. So there's all the, you know, imagine just delete the New Testament from your mind for a second. Imagine all you had was the Old Testament. You don't know anything about a Jesus. You just know that there's going to be some Messiah figure who's going to come. God's made all these prophecies, and then there's lots of speculation and teaching about how those prophecies are going to be fulfilled. And the Herodians were trying to make a case that Herod the Great was the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Now, why that, seem, that should seem crazy to us, because we're good Christians, but it wouldn't be totally crazy to a first century... I mean, there's people who think, like, Trump is the Messiah, probably, right? So, I mean, you know, pe- people believe crazy things, um, and ju- just so in the first century. So, what might give them the idea that Herod was the Messiah? Well... Uh, In 20 BC, uh, Herod actually started to rebuild the temple. So uh, in in 20 BC, Herod leveled the temple that was currently there. That was the one that Zerubbabel uh, built uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. And he really expanded and beautified the structure into one of really the greatest wonders of the world at that time. It's also interesting, uh, if you come to midweek service, you'll get a nice little Packet with pictures of, of Herod's temple and other things in it. Um, but one of the additions that Herod made to the temple was he had this huge golden grapevine uh, crafted, and it had uh, these beautiful jewels in it, this enormous grapevine, and he had it installed at the entrance to the sanctuary. So you think... Uh, People are tourists, you know, you want to go to go see, you know, the Colosseum or New York City or whatever. This would be kind of a a must-see thing if you were a person in the ancient world traveling through Jerusalem. You have to go to the temple, and Herod was largely responsible for making Jerusalem and its temple at least externally glorious again. If you were to just look at the size of, like, Solomon's temple compared with Herod's temple— uh, Herod's temple is huge. So it's, uh, you know, Solomon's temple was the glory of the whole world at the time, and Herod's temple actually uh, pretty well surpasses it, um, if, if you look at it. So ancient we have other ancient writers who speak of how beautiful, you know, this golden grapevine was. And so Herod was, in many respects, uh, he could take credit for this. Furthermore, uh, during Herod the Great's reign, There was a time of severe famine in Judea and Herod generously fed the nation and kept them from starving. So he was perhaps in some minds kind of like this new uh, Joseph figure. So uh, despite having an Edomite uh, for a father, he did have a Jewish mother and Herod at least kind of claimed to be a Jew and really that was enough for a lot of people to accept his rule. At the same time, this was the same Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus as a child. So this is the whole Herod and the wise men thing. So he ordered the slaughter of all the male infants born in Bethlehem. And why did he do that? Because I, I think Herod knew inside that he was a fraud, that he wasn't really uh, the Messiah. And here's someone who, according to you know all the scribes are saying, he's got to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, well, that's a threat to his power and to his claim to be the Messiah, because here's the real deal. And so, so he tries to, to snuff them out. So that was Herod the Great. Uh, he died around 4 BC or 1 BC. You know, scholars debate his, the time of his death. And, and then when he died, his kingdom was divided amongst three of his sons. Uh, His son, Herod Archelaus, is uh, the one who uh, took over in Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, But he was a very, very uh, bad ruler. He uh, he was removed after nine years uh, by Rome for his incompetence. And then it was at that point that the Romans said, look, these Jews can never get along. They're always stirring up wars. They're always revolting. There's always trouble. We just need to rule them directly rather than through all of these incompetent herods, So that was actually when, so this is AD 6, was when Rome started ruling Jerusalem and Judea directly as a province, rather than through some kind of local governor from among the people. And that was when the tribute to Caesar began, and there was a revolt at this time that was quickly put down. I'll say more about that later. So, Herod the Great, he's he's uh, he lives for quite a long time, fascinating and, and wicked man. And then he dies. He has these three sons. The kingdom gets divided up. Jerusalem eventually gets taken over by the Romans. But then uh, north in Galilee, which is where we've actually been uh, reading mostly in, uh, for most of Mark's gospel, it's taking place north in Galilee. That's actually Herod Antipas' jurisdiction. And that was the one, that was the Herod who killed John the Baptist. So if you kind of imagine a map, you've got Jerusalem down here and this is governed by the Romans and then you have uh, uh, Galilee up here and this is ruled uh, by Herod Antipas and yet you have Jews that come and go between these different jurisdictions all the time. So you're kind of crossing the border into another person's uh, territory and this is quite frequent uh, during this time. So that's the Herod uh, that these Herodians in our text now are representing. So they have the the memory of Herod the Great. They have the memory of Herod Archelaus. And they have, at present, Herod Antipas, who is married to Herodias, killed John the Baptist. That's who these Herodians represent. Okay, lots of information today. So, uh, needless to say, the Herodians had a very complicated relationship with Rome. And the Jews had a complicated relationship with Herod. Herod was a kind of buffer between the Jews and Caesar. Uh, You can think about if you were a Jew, would you rather be ruled by pagans or someone who at least professed your religion? This is not uh, unlike our situation today in that, you know, most Christians would prefer to have a president or governor who at least, you know, pays lip service to the Christian God and maybe they're like anti-abortion, even if they're immoral and hypocritical on all these other things. Most Christians would say, I would rather have that because the other alternatives is someone who, uh, you know, hates children in the womb and hates Christians and doesn't you Know know the difference between the genders Okay, So you can see Just like we have to make these uh, Decisions when we vote The Jews were in a, a similar Position. Do you want to be ruled By the kind of fake Jew, the Herod And he was like, okay, it, it could be worse We could be ruled by absolute idolaters Which uh, the Romans were So this is why there's this complicated relationship Between the Jews and Herod And the Romans and, and Herod So uh, the Herod was really the lesser of two evils as far as many Jews were concerned. Uh, the Herodians were then kind of pro-Roman in that they derived their power and authority from Rome. So they were subordinate to Rome. Um, but if Herod Antipas got out of line, Caesar could totally uh, kick him out just like he did, did with his brother Herod Archelaus. At the same time, Herod was, of course, interested in expanding his power to include what once belonged to his father, Namely, you want the capital, you want Jerusalem, you want Judea for a man as vain as Herod who you know, wants to be this great king. You can imagine uh, his buddies telling him, hey, you're the, uh, you're the fulfillment of these prophecies in scripture. You, know, you have this divine destiny and Jerusalem is going to be yours because, of course, the son of David rules from Jerusalem, So there's all sorts of propaganda going around. We don't know exactly what was in Herod's mind, but that would be at least one reasonable um, uh, conclusion to draw. Uh, We actually see in Luke 23, verse 12, that Herod Antipas, so the one in Galilee, has actually come down for Passover. And this is why at Jesus' trial, remember they bring him to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate says, uh, look, this guy is not uh, guilty of all the things that you are claiming he's guilty of. Oh, he's a Galilean. And then he says, I'll send him to Herod because this isn't actually my jurisdiction. So, he, so Herod just happens to be in town at the time with these Herodians because it's Passover. It's the biggest Jewish festival uh, there is. And so he sends him over. And it, uh, this is what it says. Uh, Luke 23, verse 12. Pilate and Herod were made friends together by this interchange of sending Jesus back and forth. And it says, but before they were at enmity between themselves. So there, there had been tension, bad blood between Rome and the Herodians, between Herod and Pontius Pilate. And yet their uh, being anti-Jesus is what brings them all together. Okay, So when we sing in Psalm 2, uh, the kings of the earth have uh, gathered together against the Lord and his Messiah, Uh, it's prophesying this, Herod, Pontius Pilate, all the powers at that time conspiring all against the Lord and his Messiah. So Herod, from his perspective, he needed Rome, he needed Caesar. That gave him kind of the muscle and legitimacy for his government, but he also was, you know, envious, wanted to rule Jerusalem, and if there was a way for him to get that, uh, he would take it. So lots of politics happening in the Gospels, different parties jockeying for power, and the Herodians were just one of these factions. All right, what about the Pharisees? The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the more kind of orthodox or right-wing or conservative party in that they rightly believed that the Messiah had to be, you know, like a real Jew. (laughs) Like he had to be from uh, Judah, he had to be uh, descended from David, and he even had to be born in Bethlehem. They knew that. Remember, they don't think Jesus is the Messiah because they think he's from Nazareth and like nothing good comes out of nazareth and then you're reading and you know well actually he he really is from bethlehem yeah they they didn't know that so uh, the pharisees rightly rejected herod's messianic pretensions they knew better but their chief concern was to maintain their own power right self preservation and eventually, they wanted to regain real Jewish sovereignty in Judea and Jerusalem. And since they were the, the kind of highest Jewish authorities, if Rome's gone, hey, who, do, uh, who does authority fall to? It falls to them. Okay, So the Pharisees are kind of playing this game where they want to appeal to the masses. They want to appeal to the populace. And they're looking for an opportunity. If there's a weakness, maybe they can link up with the Herodians. Maybe they can make a deal. If Pilate's gone, then they'll have power. So all of these motivations are happening in the background here. So uh, did they like paying tribute to Caesar? Of course not. Nobody likes paying tribute to someone else. But they had no choice, and they paid it anyways. So just to summarize... Uh, despite whatever theological disagreements there were between Pharisees and Herodians, they were united in their hatred for Jesus. And thus it says in verse 13 that they want to, quote, catch him in his words. So what is the trap that they are going to set? Uh, Verses 14 uh, to 15a. It says, and when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? Well, as it says in Psalm 2, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. These Herodians and Pharisees set their trap with flattery and false compliments to Jesus. What are they? They say that Jesus is true. They say that Jesus judges justly. They, says, they say that he judges without respect of persons. He, he cares for no man. That's, that's a good thing. Uh, they say that Jesus teaches the way of God in truth. And in all this flattery, you're probably catching some of the irony, right? There's a double irony in that first, they themselves are doing the very opposite of everything they're applauding in Jesus And second, while they intend these compliments falsely, uh, in reality, they're speaking the truth. They're speaking words truer than they even realize or intend. Jesus really is the truth. Jesus really does judge without respect of persons. Jesus really does teach the way of God and is himself the way, the truth, and the life. So while the Pharisees and Herodians are flattering Jesus, They think they're setting this trap for him. Uh, They're really setting a trap for themselves. As it says in Psalm 12, verse three, the Lord will cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. So before we see how Jesus uh, cuts off these flattering lips, let us consider just the human wisdom, the human cunning behind their question. Is it lawful to give this tribute to Caesar or not? So think about it. What outcome are the Sanhedrin hoping for? Because in their minds, this is a win-win question, no matter how Jesus answers. And Jesus has already faced similar uh, scenarios like this, and it's always entertaining to watch him uh, flip, flip it. So let, let's just see, what were the Sanhedrin hoping for? Well, if Jesus says yes, it is unlawful to give tribute to Caesar well, then they can just have him arrested by the Romans for stirring up rebellion. He claims to be a king. He just came in here riding on a donkey. People are shouting, he's the son of David. And now he's saying, don't pay tribute to Caesar. That's a pretty open, shut case for them to bring him forward and have him convicted before Pilate uh, for sedition or rebellion. Uh, We know this because a few days later, when they actually do arrest uh, Jesus secretly and drag him before Pontius Pilate, This is the exact same play that they're going to run. So it says in Luke 23, verse two, they began to accuse him saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So notice, regardless of how Jesus answers, this is the charge that they're really gonna try to make stick before Pontius Pilate because uh, the Jews at this time in Judea they did not have the power of the death penalty, so they're going to convict him for blasphemy according to their you know, religious laws, but they actually need to have Jesus committing a civil crime according to Roman law to get him crucified. So this is uh, their logic. If we can get him uh, to run afoul of uh, Rome, then Rome can do our job for us. Uh, At the time, Pilate sees through this false accusation, and that's when he sends him to Herod. Uh, But you can see, again, this is the charge they're trying to make stick. So that's if Jesus says, yes, he's gonna end up uh, crucified with this charge. The other option is that Jesus just says, no, it is lawful to pay tribute to Caesar. And then what happens? Well, then he kind of loses all of the, Influence that he has with the Jewish masses who uh, expect from the Messiah that he's going to actually set them free. So, this is the great symbol of oppression. Uh, You know, Daniel prophesied when the kingdom of God comes, it's going to crush uh, the iron and clay feet and cause the statue to topple. And so, they're rightly expecting some kind of liberation. And in their minds, they're thinking, yeah, let's get behind this Jesus guy he's going to lower our tax bill, okay? So this was a common populist sentiment, and this is why earlier in Jesus' ministry, when they're trying to just make Jesus king after he you know, feeds the 5,000, Jesus has to escape, okay? Because they want to make him king, but what they're thinking and what Jesus is thinking are two different things. Their understanding of kingship, God's understanding, understanding of kingship are different. So as far as the Sanhedrin are concerned, either... Jesus alienates his, his base, the Jewish masses who want to enthrone him and get some tax relief, or he incriminates himself by saying tribute to Caesar is unlawful, and then they charge him with sedition. So in their minds, this is the perfect question with a win-win outcome. And it's really interesting, if you don't know how Jesus uh, answers, to just stop there and think, well, okay, what would you do? <laughs> if this is you, this is the gotcha question that the reporter asks, cameras rolling, you know, what, what do you say? So uh, how does Jesus respond? Verse uh, 15b, but Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. So Jesus first just openly says, why are you testing me? He wants them to know that he knows that they are being hypocrites. This question about the lawfulness of paying tribute is not an actual question. It's just this made-up hypothetical. Because in reality, if any of them uh, actually refused to pay the tribute, they would lose the very thing that they are desperately trying to hold on to, namely their status and authority which Rome gives them. And so at first, Jesus doesn't answer their question but rather he asks them to bring him a Roman denarius as uh, translated as a penny in the KJV. I assure you it's worth much more than uh one penny, one, one 2023 American penny at least. And, uh, you know, if you have your bulletin, you can see, uh, uh there's a few potential coins that this could have been. This is the most likely one that I've put in here, but they all say the same thing. So, um, The denarius was a standard-issue Roman silver coin, and it represented about a day's worth of labor. And so, you know, say minimum wage is $15 an hour. You work for eight hours. That equals $120. So, you know, very roughly, a denarius is like $120 in modern-day dollars. So um, it's not a lot, but it's something, and everyone in Judea uh, was required to pay this tribute or head tax. Now remember where is ju- whose jurisdiction is Jesus in? Well, he's a Galilean and Galilee does not have to pay this tribute. So Jesus actually doesn't have to pay anything to Caesar as someone who lives in uh, Galilee. And therefore uh, the Sanhedrin could kind of appear to be asking Jesus this question because, you know, he's an outsider. He's a neutral third party, and he can come settle this intramural question among the Jews. You know, does it violate God's law to pay tribute to Caesar? You know, speaking as an outsider, as, as you are. So one of the arguments uh, that some uh, Jewish zealots used against paying this tax was that the money itself was idolatrous and blasphemous. So uh, Leviticus 26 verse 1 says this, You shall make no idols nor graven image, neither rear you up a a standing image, neither shall ye set up any image of stone in your land. And well, if you look at this coin, uh, you can see that on one side is, well, that looks like a graven image to me, right? (laughs) There's uh, Caesar's likeness engraven upon the coin. And what does it say? Well, uh, you know, is Maya here, our Latin expert? She could could translate this for us, but I've put it in there for you. It says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Uh, That's on the left side. And then on the right side, it says, Pontiff Maxim, high priest. So, uh, yeah, we would call that blasphemy, right? Someone claiming to be God. Uh, And for them, high priest, you know, in the Roman religion is like, the the highest high uh, a person could be. So they're they're the mediator between God and man, right? That's in the Roman mind who Caesar was. So on this coin, you've got this graven image. You've got Caesar claiming to be both son of God and high priest. And so the argument went that to pay such tribute was to break the first commandment it was to commit idolatry and furthermore no such images or coins of these should be allowed in the temple you can read uh, of you know certain rabbis who like i refuse to look at the coin at all you know don't even put that blasphemous image before my eyes and they contended that these coins should not be allowed anywhere in especially in the temple but really in all jerusalem cuz leviticus 26:1 Right? You shall not make any graven image in your land. So, uh, a generation earlier in the year 6 AD, as I said, there was a man named Judas the Galilean who led a tax revolt against this tribute to Caesar. And uh, we have uh, him quoted saying the following. He says, They are cowards who would endure to pay a tax to the Romans and would, after God, submit to mortal men as their lords. So think of, uh, you know, Herod Archelaus has just been deposed. Rome has just taken over the city. And now they're imposing this tribute. And, you know, they're using Bible verses. Look at the coin. And they're saying, we will not accept this kind of uh, imposition. We're not going to serve uh, uh, Caesar and give him this tribute. And so that was the logic of the zealots. Their logic was that Israel was a sovereign theocracy ruled by God and God alone, and therefore no foreign power could exact uh, tribute from them. So what do you think? (laughs) Are you going to jump in with Judas and his tax revolt? Do you have the courage of your convictions? Well, uh, while that might sound uh, biblical and pious, It is actually the opposite of what God commanded after the first temple was destroyed. Uh, See Jeremiah, see Daniel, and other places. Uh, But these zealots were kind of the more extreme Jewish nationalists who who wanted to set up God's kingdom by force rather than submit to the authorities that God had placed over them. And what was the reward for their zealotry? Well, it was that Rome just violently demolished them. So this tax revolt was very swiftly put down. It would actually be this exact same kind of uh, theological and political argumentation that would uh, wipe Jerusalem off the map a generation earlier. So when uh, the Jewish-Roman War started in 66, ended in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, uh, Jesus is going to prophesy about all of that in the very next chapter in Mark 13. So... There's already kind of this crackle in the atmosphere. There's a history here, and this is going to eventually come back, this ideology, and it's going to utterly destroy uh, Jerusalem itself. So the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Jews are all aware that this tribute to Caesar is a very touchy subject. People had died rebelling against it a generation earlier, and there was at present a diversity of opinion about whether that tribute and whether such a revolt was really justified or not. You know, just like people today argue about, you know, was the Civil War a just war? You know, who was on the right side? What about World War I? What about World War II? Right? Just, just like Americans do that today, same thing in the first century, although this was a lot closer in time to them. Jesus, um, Jesus of course, sees through this trap And he calls them on their hypocrisy by asking for the coin. He says, bring me a penny that I may see it. So this is actually kind of his first answer. Because what is Jesus doing by asking for this coin? Well, he's making them answer their own question. If they bring him the coin, then they reveal that they believe it is lawful. And therefore they lose whatever influence they wanted Jesus to lose. If they don't bring him the coin, then, well, the charge of uh, sedition and disloyalty to Rome can be leveled at them. So do you see how Jesus has just flipped it on them and put them in now a lose-lose dilemma? So what do they do? Which option do they take? Uh, uh, Verse 16a, it says, and they brought it. So think of what they could have done. They could have just said, we don't have any. We have the courage of our convictions to refuse to pay such an idolatrous and oppressive tribute to Caesar. They could have said that. But by the very fact of them having and bringing to him such a coin within the temple complex, remember where we are, they are revealing where they stand on this question. So they can't pretend to be sympathetic with the zealots or the Jewish masses who might have been sympathetic to that cause. Jesus goes further and makes them acknowledge what is on the coin. Like, he really wants them to know and everyone watching to know that they know what's on this coin. He says, whose is this image and superscription? You know, you imagine everyone everyone knew what was on these coins, but Jesus wants to make them say it. They said unto him, Caesar's. So whatever arguments they pretend to have against paying this tribute, whether theological or political or otherwise, Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy before everyone. The fact that they have a denarius, they know what is on it, and all of them pay it, proves that their question about its lawfulness is indeed hypocritical. Now, he could have just stopped there and walked away. But Jesus, uh, because he wants to teach us something, Nevertheless, he gives them an answer to their question that makes them marvel. Verse 17. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So what is Jesus saying in answer to their question? Is it lawful or is it not? Well, the crucial word in Jesus' answer is this word, Render, Uh, in Greek, this is apodote, which means to give back to someone. And think about that: you can only give back to someone what they have first given to you. So the question, so it's kind of uh, an answer with another question in it. Render, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and now you have to answer the question: what belongs to Caesar? Well, for starters, the Denarius that bears his image and inscription was only in circulation because Caesar made it so. <laughs> it's, got, it's got Caesar's image on it. he's like, "Yeah, give, give it back to him. It's, it's his." But what that coin and what that tribute represented was really the many other blessings that Caesar had provided for them, like safety and protection from foreign invaders. Before Rome had authority over Jerusalem, the region was fraught with constant civil war, constant threats from other nations and empires, the Syrians, the Egyptians, the Persians, and so on. And Jerusalem was geographically located at the crossroads of many trade routes, so it was a very strategic city that any empire would want to occupy. So humanly speaking, Caesar and the Roman Empire, that Pax Romana, provided the Jews with security, stability, and peaceful conditions for them to actually worship God and even prosper. And for those who knew the prophets well, especially the book of Daniel, this is actually just what God had told them. God revealed that the Jews would be governed by four subsequent foreign empires until the coming of the Messiah. So Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. That's what Uh, When Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of the statue with the golden head and the silver torso and and so on, uh, this is what he is seeing. It's also what God revealed to Daniel in Daniel 7 with these four beast empires. And so the Jews should have known, and, and many of them did know, that if they kept covenant with God, he would take care of them regardless of who was on the throne. This is what the whole book of Esther is about. This is what the whole book of Daniel is about. This is what uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are about, that God is going to preserve a faithful remnant. And, you know, what's Daniel in the lion's den? What's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the furnace? Well, God's saying, hey, for about 400 years, you're going to be ruled by these foreign uh, empires, and it's going to be like being in a furnace. It's going to be like living in a lion's den but those who are faithful are going to come out unscathed, right? I'm going to be standing there with you in the furnace that is being ruled by the Babylonians. And what what happens? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he tries to kill them, but then he ends up getting converted. Uh, what happens when his son apostatizes Belshazzar and, you know, Mene Mene Tekel Parsons written on the wall? Well, who comes in? Darius the Mede. This is the guy that Isaiah prophesied about that God calls my anointed. And he says, hey, let's go rebuild that temple. All right, here's a foreign Gentile king. And he's saying, I want you to go back and rebuild the temple. And by the way, uh, all expense is paid. I'm paying for it. Even Alexander the Great was quite favorable to the Jews. So you have these foreign rulers and God says, hey, their heart is is like a river in my hands. I can turn it whithersoever w- I, I will. And if, if you bear witness, if you are faithful, doesn't mean you're never going to have your head chopped off. Sometimes that will happen, but I will preserve you. I will preserve my people until the Messiah comes. So this is what they were charged to do. Obey God, be faithful to him. And that is exactly what Uh, God did for those who are faithful in those 400 years between Old and New Testament. So all that to say, when we get to the New Testament and we have, you know, uh, very explicitly in Romans 13, it says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. That's not like a new doctrine. This is just restating what the policy had always been. You bear witness, you be faithful, you worship God and him alone. And unless the government is requiring you to sin, right? If Caesar is telling you to bow down to that image, you say no. But if he's asking you to just pay the tax, he says, yeah, you actually should pay that. Because there's many blessings that they are providing for you through me, God, that you don't even recognize. So maybe the tribute is theft. Maybe the tax is unjust, maybe it is tyrannical, but it's not a sin to be stolen from. It is not a sin to give back to Caesar what Caesar has made. Paul says more explicitly in Romans thirteen six: For this reason pay ye tribute also. Why? Because they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. All right, so that's the render to Caesar part. You know, pay your your taxes, pay your tribute. There's blessings that you don't even recognize uh, that are coming from him. But it is the second part of Jesus' answer that really makes uh, the people to marvel. Render to God the things that are God's. So if the coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image, well, what bears God's image? Well, Caesar, you, everyone, everything belongs to God. And therefore we can trust that when we give back to Caesar, what God commands, the tribute, the taxes, we're giving to God what belongs to God, right? When you pay your taxes begrudgingly to uh, The federal government to the state of Washington, and you cringe thinking about what all those taxes are going to support, you're actually giving to God the obedience that he commands of you. And this is where uh, Jesus' answer kind of makes no one happy, (laughs) because uh, for all those, the Jewish populace who really want this relief from the tax burden, Jesus is telling them, that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to give you that. But that's the thing that they rally behind at at an election. So Jesus is calling all of his hearers to not only give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but to give back to God what God has first given to them. And that means giving to God really our everything, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, our breath, our time, our talent, our treasure. And here's the thing. When you truly belong to God and offer yourself entirely to Him, and you know that God is the, is the power behind all earthly powers, including the evil ones, well, you can now live in the midst of this wicked world with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Or as we heard in 1 Peter 2, 16 and 17, we can live as free, And not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You see, the Jews wanted to use God as a cloak for their envy, their greed, their maliciousness. The Jewish zealots tried to use God and the scriptures as their justification for rebellion, for sedition, for murders and inciting a civil war. And in a similar way, Christians, especially those living under an oppressive and wicked regime, as we are, we also will be tempted to use God and the scriptures as a cloak for all kinds of things that are actually just carnal, fleshly, things that would be actually disobedient to God. So we need to get really clear in our minds What belongs to Caesar and also what does not? And that's what we're going to actually work on all of next week. But you can't actually answer that question, what belongs to Caesar and what doesn't, unless you know first and foremost what belongs to God and whose image you bear. I'll close with this. Jesus Christ suffered and died and rose again so that the image of God in you could be renewed and transformed into the image of Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, uh, 28 to 29, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal of predestination, okay? It's that you would be conformed into the image Of God's Son. And so the life of a a Christian, whether under Caesar or under any other authority, is one in which if you love God, He will make all things conspire for your good. And that good is that you are conformed into the image of Christ. There's no higher good or higher reward than that. There is no higher good or higher reward than knowing God and being made more like him. Surrender, give back to your creator the life he has given you. And if you do, he will give it back to you, immortal and resurrected and far more glorious than before. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.